Welcome to Christian Renewal Church Sunday Sermon. Thanks for tuning into our series, Kingdom Come, based out of our study on the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. For more information about this sermon and other resources, visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org. Remember in the day, um, rabbis would disciple the intellectually elite. You would disciple the ones who were... Um, they didn't go to a trade school. They went to school just to study scripture. Um, but Jesus doesn't do that. He chooses disciples who are the common people. He chooses fishermen, tax collectors, um, a zealot. He's completely making a declaration that his kingdom is for the everyday person. So in Matthew's narrative, when we start to get into Matthew 5... Um, we have to ask the question of, does Matthew give us Jesus in chapter 4, defeating Satan in the wilderness, and then Jesus giving a sermon to his followers in chapter 5? It feels as if he's teaching his disciples how to defeat Satan in the wilderness. It feels as if he's communicating that this is the new essence, the new nature, the new character of his coming kingdom, which is already victorious in the wilderness and will be further victorious at the cross and will even be further victorious at the second coming of Jesus. It feels as if he's initiated this victory in the wilderness, then he has called his disciples, and then on the on the most scholars believe it was in Galilee, on a mountainside in Galilee, he sits down and he begins to communicate the essence, the nature of this new coming kingdom. Are you following that line of thought? He, he, the Beatitudes are, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Um, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so the Beatitudes have this, this now fulfillment in the sense that those that are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. But the real emphasis is on an eschatological fulfillment, an end times fulfillment. So when he says, blessed are those who mourn in this day, for they shall be comforted. So in a sense, we are comforted today by the Holy Spirit. Jesus calls the Holy Spirit our comforter. But in the fullest sense, we shall be comforted on the day when he wipes every tear from our eyes. In a sense... Um, we are advancing the kingdom of God in the earth today, but in the fullest sense, when there will be a new heaven and a new earth in the, on the last day, Jesus says the meek on that day will inherit the earth. So there's all kind of nuances, all kind of things that he's communicating um, throughout this, but there is an end times fulfillment. There's a future promise fulfillment declared on these specific character attributes. So Jesus is rallying his troops. He's rallying, rallying his, the people that will support this new kingdom. And then he's saying these attributes, the people that, that, that carry, that literally in their inner man, they carry about these attributes. These people will experience the fullness of the kingdom. And so you should go, what are these attributes and how do I carry them? And so that's where we'll find ourselves for the next eight weeks. So I want to read to you um, just the conclusion of chapter 4 because it kind of sets up um, the introduction of chapter 5. So I'm going to start in 4 um, verse 23. He went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, 
epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee um, and to the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So he's, he's displaying the kingdom through driving out the demonic and healing the sick. And then it says in chapter 5, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. That's the posture of a teacher of the day. The teacher would sit. He went up on the mountain, he sat down, and his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's where we'll stop today. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So again, displaying the power of this kingdom, calling the first followers of this kingdom. And in this scene that we kind of get, Jesus is communicating to his disciples, yet there's a crowd of people listening on. And so in some sense, Jesus is is declaring the nature of the kingdom to his followers, but he's also inviting the crowds into this new experience with this new kingdom. And the first thing he says is that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I've joked in the past that my idea growing up of poor um, was that you were poor if you didn't have grass, and if you did have grass, you were rich. Okay, so that was my um, straightforward. I can remember being like toddler, not toddler, but like four or five, and going to someone's house and saying, "They have grass. They are rich." But if you, we didn't have grass, we had dirt. And so when Haley and I bought our house in Columbia, our last house, we. Um, we bought what we could afford, and that sucker had a yard full of dirt, okay? Um, grass is a sign of success. I'm still trying to get there. I'm still trying to get the grass. It's a big deal. You got grass, you're blessed. Then you got to mow it. Yeah, you got to upkeep it. You got to fertilize it. That's, what, that's where the money comes in. The first thing you should ask of this text is, what does it mean to be poor? But that's kind of my point, is that poor is a relative term. Poor um, to you could be totally different than poor to me. What does it mean to be poor? Specifically, what does it mean to be poor in Jesus' day and age, in Jesus' time period, in his historical setting? It was much different than what we think of to be poor in our community. Um, and, and this word that's coming coming forth when he, that he uses for poor... It's a, it's, it comes from a root, which is a verb. And the, the, the verb of the word means to crouch or cower. It means to bend over. And so, but Jesus is using the word with the adjective form. And so the adjective literally means, blessed are those who, who are beggarly poor, who crouch and cower. So the term poor, the verb again meaning crouch and cower, it means for your mind to imagine someone on the street begging, someone begging for money, begging for food. And so Jesus, the word he used here is not like American middle class. The word he uses is here communicates a, a, a desperateness, a dependency. The, the kind of poor that are so aware of their need that they need someone else to come through or they will crumble. The, the kind of poor that if they don't get money from someone on the street today, they're not going to eat. The kind of poor that, that are begging for a place to stay because they can't cover themselves. That kind of poor. Blessed are the, poor, the beggarly poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So our minds jump into, what does that mean? What does it mean to be poor in spirit? What is that trying to communicate to us? First, and most commonly noted, is 
most, most commentators jump straight to the idea of being spiritually poor means that you acknowledge your spiritual depravity. The idea of being spiritually poor means that you, as an individual, recognize that outside of God, you have nothing to give. It, it is an acknowledgement that you have sinned and not only fallen short of the glory of God, but fallen wonderfully short of the glory of God. I am desperately short of God's goodness. It is an acknowledgement that you have nothing to bring before God that would cause God to approve of you. It is an acknowledgement that God has blessed us with life and we have we have tainted it with disease and death. To be spiritually poor is to acknowledge the doctrine of total depravity that you have nothing to give in and of yourself. So in a sense, the way that I've come to understand this text is that to be spiritually poor, firstly, is to be convicted of sin. It is to embrace conviction of sin. It's that you've heard the voice of the Holy Spirit communicating to you where you need to change and where you, you've, you've felt the displeasure of the Holy Spirit. You've, you've acknowledged that you have fallen short. It's the first thing of being poor in spirit is that you've embraced conviction of sin. So I typically, when I talk about this, would go to Luke 18 and I want to read to you just a quick parable to kind of articulate this point. So in Luke 18, verse 9, Jesus um, gives this parable. Um, Luke says, He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He said this, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Notice that he gave the parable to the self-righteous people. And then he said, because of your self-righteousness, you will not be justified. You will not come into the kingdom. The tax collector is busy confessing his sin, beating his breast, saying, God, forgive me, a sinner, asking for mercy. He's experienced the conviction of the Holy Spirit, welcomed it, savored it, allowed it, allowed it to seep deep into his inner man, into his inner posture. And so he comes to God poor. He says, forgive me, I'm a sinner. But the, self, the self-righteous man, he has an exalted view of self. And the tax collector, rather than confessing his sins, he's busy reminding God of his good deeds. He's busy reminding God of all that he's done. And hear me, God rejects him. The kingdom of God rejects the one who think that they come to God and remind God of all their goodness. Jesus says, this man is not justified. This man is rejected. God disdains those who stand in his presence boasting of their own righteousness. Now, I want to teach you something that will change your life if you'll listen to me just for one minute. will radically change your life if you'll catch hold of it. Self-righteousness, and particularly self-righteous people, The reason that they're self-righteous is because they have a very bad theology of God. Self-righteous people have low theology. 
have bad theology. So when I experience someone who comes in with their chest spiritually puffed out, I do not let that person intimidate me because all they're communicating to me is they don't realize how big God is. Because when Isaiah gets in the presence of God, do you remember what he says? He says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell amongst men of unclean lips. He's saying, I am a sinner compared to the great glory of this God which I stand before. And Moses prayed, God, give me a glimpse of your glory. And do you remember what God said? He said, I'll cover you and you can see my backside. Any man who thinks he comes into the presence of God and looks God in the eye, they have awful theology. So you can be liberated and don't feel condemned by that kind of person because they really just don't have good theology. Because the person who's really growing in sanctification, even when they've made some progress in practical holiness, they still realize that no person has ever fallen before me and declared holy, holy, holy. But angelic beings, they spend all day and night falling before Jesus and declaring holy, holy, holy. And so the tax collector here bows his head and backs out, beats his chest and says, you were much more than me. While the self-righteous man stands upright, stands closer and reminds God of how great he is. Bad theology, low theology. Your, our theology says that even as we grow in practical holiness, I never scratch the surface of Jesus' glory. Even in my best day, my best hour, my best moment, I don't even come close to the beauty, the worth, the majesty of Jesus. Me, at my best, I still fall and crumble before the glory of God. The poor in spirit recognize that. They acknowledge that, that God is much more pure and righteous than I'll ever come close to. He's bigger than me. And that recognition, it liberates me from walking in a self-righteous spirit. And that recognition also liberates me from being intimidated or condemned by those around me who walk in a self-righteous spirit. I make no room for it. My theology refuses to make room for it. The men of God of old feared the brightness of God's face. Just catching a glimpse of God's face would destroy them. Y'all ain't hearing me today. Y'all ain't hearing that. Self-righteous people actually think little of God's holiness while the poor in spirit acknowledge the great magnitude of it. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to come to the cross, acknowledge that beautiful sacrifice where Jesus shed his blood because of my sin, because of my failures, and to beg for God's grace. The poor in spirit, they crouch, they hunger and thirst, they beg for God's mercy because they understand that they need it. The poor in the spirit, they cling to the blood, they cling to the cross of Calvary because the cross of Calvary is their only hope and the self-righteous people attempt to bypass it because they do not see a need for it. Self-righteous people have no need for grace because they think that they've performed well enough. While the poor in spirit, me and I know you, I acknowledge that I stink and need that. Need the grace. I am beggarly poor for the grace of God. Without it, I have nothing. Poor in spirit. First, 
commentators acknowledge that it's a recognition of your own depravity and your need for grace. And the church, the kingdom people, the people that will inherit the earth with the kingdom of God in the last day, they will celebrate the cross. They will worship Jesus. They will sing thank you for the blood of the lamb that was shed before the foundation of the earth. These This new kingdom people, they are a cross-celebrating people. And the self-righteous could never celebrate grace because they need to justify themselves. The next thing that, that's interesting, and I, I want to just dance around it for a second. Um, does the idea of being poor in spirit carry any, um, any financial connotation? Does it, does it mean, does it have anything to do with your money? Um, I think off the cuff, no, it's not about money, but, New Testament scholar um, Craig Keener, in his commentary on this passage, um, he, he, he cites a study that concludes that Christians in less fortunate countries are much more committed to their faith and more willing to pay prices for it than Christians in affluent countries. So they surveyed Christians in the West and they surveyed Christians in the East who are struggling financially and the Christians in the East were ready and willing to attend church regularly, to pay tithes, to even give their lives for the gospel and the Christians in the West were a little more hesitant. They were a little more hesitant to pay prices for their faith. And so that that should be a challenge for us. Um, I think as I kind of thought through what Keener was trying to communicate, I think that that first of all, I don't think that's us. I think us as a church, we want to pay prices for the gospel. But I do think that our financial wealth and our our blessing does bring a temptation to lean on our financial wealth where others have had to lean on God. When you have to lean on God for food every day, you're much more willing to, to, to show up to church and pay your tithe than to be willing to sacrifice. You, there's a greater dependence, a more natural dependence that the poor have on God that those who are rich don't have naturally. Doesn't mean that you can't have it, but means that, that those, thus, most of us, those in the West for the most part, who, who, when we need food, we can go to work and get it. We can provide for ourselves. We have a natural temptation to lean on our own flesh, our own provision, our own, um, skills and talents rather than needy depending on God for provision. There's a natural temptation to trust in man, to trust in our own efforts. And if we're not careful, that natural temptation, if we slip into it, and if we live as if we are self-sufficient, that eases into our spiritual life. And not coming to church every week is okay, because we, if we need rest, what we really will do is go pay money for a condo and go get a vacation, where those who are poor who need rest might get their butts in the presence of God and try to find rest. There are those kind of little nuances that happen when you experience financial blessing. It's not a shot at financial blessing at all. It's just a warning that when you live financially blessed, you have to be extra careful to work every day to be poor in spirit and to acknowledge that even my, even my, the wealth, even the financial blessings, God, they're your gift. And because they're your gift, I'll, I will tithe. I will give. I will give to, because they're your gift, I will live thankful for the finances. I don't walk around and carry the finances as if they are a, a symbol of my own success. Do you understand the way that culture does that? It wants you to flaunt your financial well-being as a symbol and a sign of how successful and how talented and gifted you are as an inner man in, in your person. It wants you to flaunt your 
and say, I'm better than. But the spiritually poor say, no, like even my blessing is God's gift. And I'm going to use the gift to support the kingdom. To even, even the success, it's God's favor. The gifts that I have, the gifts that I use to provide for my family, those gifts come from God. I didn't muster those things up myself. I am beautifully and wonderfully designed. So anything I come to that I'm successful in, it's because of God's great gift to me and His favor and His goodness. And my life is a proclamation of how great He is. This success is not a sign of how it's not how it works in the kingdom of God. That's not how the poor in spirit operate. And the last thing, and, and we've kind of like beat this drum so hard over the last couple of weeks, but I find it incredibly important in this setting to, to talk through. Um, the last thing is, is that the, the poor in spirit acknowledge that they're not self-sufficient. So, um, the, probably the greatest theologian of the 20th century, his name was Karl Barth. Um, and Karl Barth, along with Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was a huge fan of Karl Barth. You remember Dietrich Bonhoeffer was that German martyr we talked about in the past. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth, they, they reamed at this idea that when God created man, um, he said this, he said, let us make God in our image. Let, let us make man in our image. And so we talked about before, the early church fathers understood that to mean, to, to be a, a Trinitarian statement. Let the Trinity make man in the Trinity's image. And so Bonhoeffer made radical claims like this, that you cannot be truly human until you enter into relationship and fellowship with other people. That if God, if the Trinity is three persons, three co-equal, co-eternal persons who exist in perfect relational harmony. And that perfect relational harmony God created you to reflect his image. You cannot reflect his image while you live on an island and try to communicate that you are perfectly self-sufficient. No, you're not self-sufficient because you were created in the image of a relational God. And you'll never experience creation in the way in which God intended it to be unless you live valuing relationship with those around around you. So the poor in spirit, they're, they're not self-sufficient people because the Trinity created us in such a way to live in relational harmony, to live leaning on, needing encouragement, spending time with. You should be full of joy as you spend time with your family and just laugh. You walk out of the room encouraged and uplifted. You were created to need that. And so the, the self-righteous and the arrogant, oftentimes, they pigeon themselves in little holes because they put on these facades and these, not to be too, like, psychoanalysis here, but, 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 but counselors, um, psychiatrists are saying that, that we all, when we meet society, when we face society growing up, we all in our, in our internal man, we cognitively decide that there are certain characteristics Characteristic traits that if we present, if we put off, that will be more accepted. And so we all walk around with a presentation that we want people to experience. We want them to see the me that I want you to see. And that we're constantly presenting the me that I want you to see because I think that in presenting that me that I will be more successful. But what we don't realize is that by continually presenting the me that I want you to see and never actually letting you just see me, we're actually fostering this kind of isolation that's not kingdom. 
Let me just rattle off some text for you for a moment. Jesus calls Father Abba. He teaches us to pray, Abba. That means God is this relational father to him. And then Jesus says this to the disciples. I no longer call you slaves, but I call you friends. And then Jesus says to Mary after his resurrection, he says, um, go back to Peter and tell them that I have gone to, to my father and your father. I have gone to my God and your God. And so Jesus is communicating to the disciples that you have, because of the cross, been sucked up into family, into community, into relationship. Your God, my God. Abba, I no longer call you slaves. I call you friends. Now value fellowship. And in this kingdom fellowship, so many times we think of heaven as if I get to sit on a chair by myself on the beach. And maybe there'll be some of that. But heaven will be this relational community family in which you don't have to fight and put off a facade in order to be, to be accepted. You, you don't have to walk around with this thing in front of you, this shield, this false persona shield that I'm hoping to protect. That doesn't happen in heaven. In heaven, we celebrate the person of Jesus and we live in relational harmony because in heaven, in the kingdom, competition doesn't matter. In the kingdom, every person is valuable because they're created in the image of God. I don't need to compete with you to be valuable. I don't have to outdo you to be valuable in the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus says this, this kind of stuff about the kingdom. In the kingdom, the, the first are going to be last. In the kingdom, the greatest is the servant of all. Catch the revelation that in this new kingdom, in the poor in spirit kingdom, in which people acknowledge that I am not self-sufficient, but I need relationship, community. I need to be encouraged. I need to have conversations with people that are real and honest. And I can't live with this facade. In this kingdom, in this perfect relational kingdom, Jesus says, servants are the greatest. The last will be first. Those who humble themselves. I wash my disciples' feet. I'm not a king who sits on a throne. I wash the disciples' feet. I lower myself. And this new kingdom come that we're talking about, Jesus sitting on the Mount of Galilee, this new invading kingdom that's overthrowing Satan in the wilderness, in this kingdom people will value people so much that we won't need to live competitive. We won't live with facades. We will sit and have fellowship. Why, why is communion considered a table? Why does this psalmist talk so much about sitting around the table with God? Why do we get this imagery of like having dinner with one another as if it's the like epitome of spiritual life? And so I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is, is that, that the, the poor in spirit, they're not, they're not demeaning. They're not people that condemn, throw stones at other people. They're, they're not, they're not isolated. The poor in spirit understand that they need fellowship. They need friendship is a Jesus trait. Okay. Jesus sat down and had meals with people on the regular. The idea of biblical godly friendship is, I'm off on a rabbit trail right now, but let me reel it in. Um, In evangelicalism, which we are evangelicals, sometimes we can so streamline the gospel narrative that, that everything the gospel has to do with is setting people free from sin. Get free from sin. Get free from sin. But at some point in evangelicalism, which that is the gospel narrative, like get free from your sin. But at some point, we've got to emphasize why we're getting free from sin. What's the point? 
And, and it is the, the point of getting free from sin is to re-experience the great creation that God created in the early chapters of Genesis. But at some point, you've got to acknowledge that God is setting me free from selfishness so that I can actually enjoy relationship with the people I'm around. He's setting you free from self-centeredness for what? So you can really hear his voice and you could sit down at lunch with someone and really experience agape love, selfless, sacrificial Love. Why is he setting you free from pornography, man? He's setting you free from pornography so that you can experience a godly, biblical, intimate relationship with your wife. There is, there is the goodness of God, the good creative order of God on the other side of getting set free from our sin. And part of you coming to know Jesus is getting set free from your selfishness and self-righteousness so that you could enter into this new, perfectly peaceful, relational kingdom. Then Jesus prays in John 17 that you would be one as he and the Father are one. He says that the, the world will know that you're my disciples because you love one another. You love one another. If I could just stop for a minute and get on another pedestal. Where does that seek into our modern Pentecostal theology? Where does the charismatic church really take hold of this idea that the church, that the disciples are known by their agape, selfless love for one another? And so many times what we do is we value the idea of anointing and we pedestal gifted people and we push these gifted people up to a place where they're no longer accountable to the church. And we start to celebrate and kind of fanboy over our Pentecostal superstars. And we've lost the, the defining trait of the church, which is selfless servant love like really loving people so I say in the church the people who are great are the people that when you sit down to lunch with you feel really cared for those are the great in the kingdom of heaven when you sit down to have lunch with them you go away saying man they love me I feel uplifted I could take off my mask and be honest for a minute those are the great in the kingdom of heaven it's not the most articulate it's not the most suave dressed it's not the person who can hold a microphone and read your mail necessarily the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those who are marked with real love what kind of church are you going to be so in conclusion This is what I want to say. The poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom. You don't earn, you can't buy your way into the kingdom of heaven. Hear that. You don't work hard enough. You don't, you know, all of us, some of us, especially me, like growing up in a broken family, sometimes I feel like if I'm successful enough, then I'll earn the approval of my family rather than that. Rather than understanding that's not the way the kingdom of God works. You don't have to be successful enough to earn your way into the kingdom. You can't be successful enough to earn your way into the kingdom. The only way you come into the kingdom is you get beggarly poor. You get real needy for the grace of God. You humble yourself, acknowledge that you are desperate and you need God's grace. No one enters the kingdom without loving, adoring, and cherishing grace. No one. So the poor in spirit, 
possess the kingdom and they don't possess it through their works. They don't possess it through their earnings. They don't possess it through their success. The poor in spirit possess the kingdom because they humble themselves, acknowledge their brokenness and cry out for the grace that Jesus offered for us. And those who ask, receive. Those who ask, receive. You are the people who had no inheritance. This was a Hosea text that Paul quotes, quotes later. No inheritance, or Peter quotes. You were once not a people. But God calls you a people. He grafts you into his family. He gives you an inheritance. And he declares you sons and daughters righteousness. He liberates you from your sin and your bondage. But it's not because of what you've done. It's because of who he is. You're not set free because you earn God's love. You're set free because God loves you. He first loved us. First loved us. So in one sense, we boldly enter the throne room. But it's because of confidence in his loving grace. And there's a nuance there that you've got to learn. I live spiritually bold, at least I'm trying to, to live spiritually bold and confident. But I don't live confident because of what I've accomplished or how great I am. I live confident because the God of heaven loves me and has offered grace. And so I boldly enter his throne, not because I'm spiritually arrogant, because I'm confident in that blood that was shed. I'm confident in this great salvation that was offered. I'm confident in that grace that was given to us. Confident, but not arrogant. And I've said this before, and I want to just keep recommunicating it, that the Christian life is driven by thankfulness. The gasoline to the car of Christianity is thankfulness. It's not pride. It's not arrogance. It's not self-sufficiency. And you cannot be truly thankful until you have admitted that you are poor, man, but you've received internal riches in Jesus. That ought to produce this incredible gratitude that you wake up every morning going, thank you, God. I didn't deserve this, man. Thank you, God. This life I live is not what I earned. The poor live radically grateful. The poor live radically thankful. The poor live humble, dependent, Aware of their own shortcomings, growing in holiness, yes, but never attempting to bypass the cross, rather daily celebrating it. Are you thankful this morning? Are you living from a grateful heart this morning? Thank you for listening to this Sunday sermon. Subscribe to our podcast for new messages weekly. Visit ChristianRenewalHHI.org for more resources. We hope you have a blessed week.